If you want a great conversation with a Philadelphia sports figure you should know more about, listen to one-on-one with Matt Leon on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Sabrina and Jay, single gender schools. What say you? New school idea or thing of the past? Sounds really outdated to me. I mean, when you think about the concept of two genders is outdated. You know, the concept of needing to separate one gender from the other because of quote unquote distractions, that's a little outdated. You could get distracted by the same gender. I don't quite understand the benefits anymore. I went to a all boys school in seventh and eighth grade. And while maybe I could have understood, albeit this was the early 90s, so things have changed a lot since then. Maybe I could have understood my my mother's reasoning for sending me there. I don't imagine I would do it. Well, here in Philadelphia, there's a push underway to create a new all-girls private school that could open in the fall. It's a much bigger issue that we have to address, that void of single-sex education, especially for women. Um, we, we do recognize that women are still struggling even in today's society. And there's some things that they're going to have to be equipped with in order to kind of break the barriers that we need to break in order to get to the places that we need to be. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina Boyd-Serka. And we'll speak with KYW News Radio's education reporter Mike DiNardo in a bit about how an alum from the shuttered Hallahan Catholic Girls High School hopes to channel the school's spirit into building something new. So to recap, yesterday was the day that the city's indoor mask mandate went back into effect. Then middle of the afternoon, late in the afternoon, it comes down that a federal judge in Florida has voided the national mask mandate for planes and public transportation. And now we're just finding out that Uber is dropping their mask requirement for drivers. Now, I spoke with Dr. Brian McDonough about what this all means from a public health perspective, especially when it comes to air travel. If you want to talk about a way of spreading COVID and running into problems, it's not wearing masks on planes. It's one of the, uh, I'm kind of surprised, I understand the legal process, but that is how you will get people from all over the world and, and, and different parts of the country strains going from one place to another that, you know, the fact that you could control it on a plane is very important. So if other people are not going to be wearing or they're not, a, you know, there's not a mandate or whatever, protect yourself. Um, and I would almost recommend because of the fact other people aren't, I would have an N95 and then put a mask over the N95 to give yourself that extra layer of protection. So yeah, there's a lot going on. And KYW News Radio's Tim Jimenez spent his morning out and about talking to commuters and travelers and finding out what's going on from their perspective. Tim, how's it going? Good, Jay. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm just confused, and it sounds like a lot of other people are too. So does anybody have an idea what is going on here? Do they know what they can or can't do when they get onto a train or a bus or or on an airplane? Uh, It's a feeling out process, I, I would guess, is the right thing to say right now because of the different rules because, and I think what throws a monkey wrench in all this, is Philadelphia's indoor mask mandate. So while you can uh, go, for example, on a flight uh, without a mask, if you choose to, if you're in the airport at Philly International, you have to have a mask on. That is still uh, the rule. According to airport officials who we talk to, they're following the city's mandate when it comes to masking indoors in public places. So uh, this morning, I spent uh, at the terminals, the terminals D&E, uh, you know, when people are head right to the security checkpoint, 
and the long lines of people there. And most of them did uh, did follow the mask rule. They kept their mask on. There were some, uh, and, and I'd say more than I've seen in the past two years covering airport stories during the pandemic, uh, there were some who did not have a mask on. And we didn't really see any enforcement of that. Now, we were told by someone uh, who was traveling that at one point, security would ask them to put their mask on, maybe by the checkpoint when they're getting scanned. And then after that, you know, when they're going to, to the lounge area, when they're waiting for their flights, uh, and of course, there's all the restaurants there for food, a lot of them did not have their masks on, and there was no real enforcement of that. So it's all interesting to see how this is all shaping up to be, where you, you, if you're at the airport and you're in terminals, technically, you are still supposed to have your mask on. One element that I find interesting and probably particularly confusing, Tim, is SEPTA, because that's run at the state level. So they are saying not required while you're on SEPTA trains, but it is still required in the city of Philadelphia. So you can have to wear masks indoors at any place in the city, but not on the train or the, you know, the subway getting between those places. And actually, we, we got clarification from SEPTA's spokesperson, Andrew Bush. You don't have to have the mask on if you choose not to at any of the stations, even in the city. And that was really interesting to me because I assumed, uh, you know, the airport is one thing. So the airport terminal would be the same as your train station, Jefferson Station, Suburban, 30th Street. But according to, to a SEPTA, the SEPTA spokesperson we talked to, that is not the case. Uh, he says that uh, these stations uh, fall under federal jurisdiction when it comes to masking. That's what that mandate was uh, in reference to. Uh, when it comes to public transportation, and SEPTA still falls under that. So in their case, they made mask wearing optional for people who work for SEPTA and, of course, all the passengers. How well can we expect these rules to even be enforced? Because as you just laid out there, it's seemingly one place to the other has one set of rules, has another set of rules, like you mentioned the gentleman saying, in the city of Philadelphia, you got to wear this mask. How can we even expect this to be enforced when we don't, half the people don't even know where are we starting and where are we ended? That's uh, a great point, Jay. And of course, a lot of the businesses, uh, the restaurant groups in Philadelphia or Pennsylvania are against uh, Philadelphia's mask mandate because of that reason, because uh, other parts of the area are not covered by that. So, you know, they think it's unfair to these businesses. And you have, of course, these workers who are once again put in a spot where they have to enforce such a rule again. And they've taken a lot of heat throughout this entire pandemic, wrongfully so. They're just doing their jobs, you know. So uh, in terms of enforcement, it should be interesting to see how that will play out. Uh, in Philadelphia, uh, people are asked to call 311 if they, if they want to report a business that does not enforce. You know, how much of that will happen? It's hard for me to say. Uh, so we will see exactly how long this will take for people to either call these or report these types of things in or not. Well, Tim Jimenez has been keeping an eye on this as we are all trying to sort out this weirdness with these mask mandates, whether they apply, whether they don't. We are certainly keeping an eye on this. Tim, thank you so much for popping in and joining us and kind of adding a little bit of clarity to this situation. Great to be with you. Thank you. You know, guys, and this confusion over where and when you need to wear masks, especially in the airport, that is not the only airline story we are focusing on. Because American Airlines was the last of the major airlines to hold out on alcohol sales since the start of the pandemic. But yesterday, they said that policy is changing, too. They're slowly reintroducing their buy on board program again. So yet another ingredient to throw into the cocktail of factors of what could make your flight these days all the more interesting. Oh, that'll be fun. <laughs> it just sounds like that's going to be all sorts of fun out there on those flights now.
Guys, I hear that uh, the Flyers are not having such a great season right now, but that might actually not be their biggest focus as there was just a lawsuit filed against them. It was filed by two of their trainers, Jim McCrossin and Sal Rafa, who still work for the Flyers, but they are claiming that the team is responsible for putting them in working conditions that expose them to harmful emissions from a Zamboni. Yeah, both Macross and Raff have been with the Flyers forever, and all this stems from their offices at the Flyers headquarters, which is over in Voorhees, New Jersey, being located right next to the ice rink and the room where the Zamboni is kept. Now, according to the suit, the athletic training room in Zamboni area had inadequate ventilation, and that caused the trainers to be exposed to toxins. Macrossan now has an incurable form of blood cancer and other rare blood conditions. Rafa also says he has blood diseases. The Flyers, now they responded to KYW News Radio saying in a statement that, quote, the safety of our employees and guests at the Flyers Training Center and all our facilities is always top priority, and we believe these claims have no merit. We'll round this out by giving a shout out to some principals in the Philadelphia School District. Seven principals were honored with the Lindback Foundation's annual Distinguished Principal Award. Yeah, and this award is a really big deal, not just because it's a high honor. It also comes with a $20,000 check and grant for the schools that these principals work for. Michael Lowe is the principal at Cook Wissahickon Elementary School, which is in Roxborough. And, you know, we know that the last couple of years for administrators, teachers, students, it's all been bad with the pandemic going on and the hurdles that have had to be crossed. So this is a good thing for Michael Lowe and Cook Wissahickon. He had some ideas about what he might want to do with that grant. To be recognized by the families and, and the, the teachers uh, really is something special. We don't have an auditorium as a school, so we want to have a place where we can bring in artists, illustrators, performers, um, people to talk to the kids in small groups. I think that's great. Extend some of the lessons outside the classroom, bring in some creative types that hopefully can put some of the lessons that need to be taught in school these days into action. I think it's really great, too, that the candidates are nominated by their own school communities. So this really shows that, you know, there it's not about metrics or a scale of any type. It's it's the people in these communities who are saying, this principal's doing a really great job. Shout out to them and congratulations to everyone over at Cook Wissahickon Elementary School in Roxborough for being able to do this. Now, a year and a half ago, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia shuttered the all-girls John Hallahan Catholic High School. And now a couple of alums are hoping to lead a revival of sorts. We'll talk about this with KWW's education reporter, Mike DiNardo, coming up next. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. I'm Sabrina. Now, in November 2020, the Archdiocese of Philadelphia decided to close two schools, Bishop McDevitt in Wincote and the John W. Hallahan Catholic Girls High School on the Parkway. But there's a movement underway to save Hallahan, at least in spirit. And here to tell us more about that is KYW's education reporter, Mike DiNardo. Mike, good to have you back with us. Great to be here, Jay. So what are we talking about here? Are we looking at a Hallahan 2.0 situation? What's going on? Well, not really 2.0, not in that it would be a traditional Catholic school with religious classes. This is an effort by Hallahan alumni and supporters who unsuccessfully tried to keep the school open. It's an effort by them to move on and provide an all-girls option of their own. Now, after Hallahan closed in June of last year, the organizers 
including the former Hallahan president uh, and one of their alumna, uh, set out to form a nonprofit to run their own school. They saw a void in that there were no uh, all-girls high schools in Center City. There was Little Flower uh, up in Hunting Park, St. Hubert's up in the Northeast, Of course, Girls High run by the school district, but there was no center city option for an all-girls high school. So the organizers have hired uh, Alexis Bennett. She's a 2010 Hallahan alum to be the head of school. This group has applied to the State Department of Education to open a private high school that they want to call the Center City Girls Academy. Our school really wants to focus on values-based education, not necessarily something that is religiously affiliated. So what are the values that we see that we need in our 21st century society? What are something that we want our citizens to have? What are something, what, what are these values that we find important as a community? And so how do we put that into our students to make sure that when they graduate, they have these values and they carry them throughout their lifetime? They've done fundraising. They've got commitments for about a half million dollars. Uh, but, Jay, the organizers say they need at least that much more to open the school. You mentioned that there is at least some support for Center City Girls Academy. What support is currently out there for them? There is some. It's difficult to gauge precisely, but the organizers say about 100 students have expressed interest in attending this new Center City Girls Academy. You have to remember that the the Hallahan students mostly moved on to do other schools at this point. So the plans for the Girls Academy are to open a ninth and 10th grade in the fall if all falls into place. What else can you tell us about their vision for maybe a curriculum? What kind of philosophy do they have? It's not a traditional Catholic education that, that we're all familiar with. Uh, their vision is to provide an option with a spiritual component. One of the things that I plan on doing as a head of school is to develop my teachers to make sure that women's voices are at the center of the curriculum at all points. So it doesn't matter if you're in history, mathematics, you should be hearing the names of women throughout your curriculum. And so that is the difference um, because there is no institution doing that right now that we know of. They don't have a formal religious curriculum, but they would like to have a mindfulness concentration, something that puts an awareness of the unique pressures that women face in the 21st century. They want those kind of pressures to be central to the curriculum in this this new school, but it wouldn't be a traditional school with uh, religious classes as we're familiar with. Mike, can you give us a little context here? Before Hallahan was closed, what type of reputation did it have? I got to imagine that for Alexis, she's a grad of Hallahan going back over a decade. It must have been a really special experience for her, for other alums who are helping support and rally behind this movement. Give us a little context. What type of school was it? Well, of course, it was a a Catholic school with a a hundred-year tradition in the Archdiocese of Philadelphia. Generations of, of, of women went there. Their mission was to provide, uh, of course, a, a traditional Catholic education in an all-girls setting. And, and tradition runs heavy, and, and that's why the, the supporters and, and students were blindsided by the decision to uh, close the school when that decision came down a year and a half ago. I mean, every year in, in June, at the end of the school year, we all went out and, and covered the, the Hallahan girls in, in the fountain. It was a tradition in Philadelphia. So there is a, a very long and story tradition in Hallahan. What's the backstory behind this? Why was Hallahan shut down? 
essentially because of low enrollment. That uh, the archdiocese said that not enough students were signing up, and if they were to keep uh, Hallahan open, they would have to raise the price of tuition to an unsustainable amount. That's essentially the reason. It's it's dollars and cents. Uh, an issue that has been, uh, we'll say, plaguing archdiocese schools uh, over the last couple of decades. Enrollment has been dropping uh, and schools have been closing. In this regard, Hallahan fell victim to the, the same economic pressures that the other schools are facing. So if enrollment was low at Hallahan and that's what caused it to close, why do they think that there will be enough interest in Center City Girls Academy? What is that planning to offer that Hallahan maybe didn't? It's a very good question. The, the vision of the of Alexis Bennett, the newly hired head of school, is to provide more than just a religious education. She wants to provide the girls who go there with the ability to compete in the 21st century. I see CCGA as forming like a very new a light within the city. There are some things that we don't have restriction to do. So one of the things we want to really open up our market to a lot of different students from a lot of diverse backgrounds that might have felt like Hallahan wasn't really a place for them. We're seeing, you know, uh, unprecedented like women leadership, you know, with our vice president, with our new um, Supreme Court justice. And those jobs are very high anxiety driven jobs. Um, and we want to make sure that the next generation of women has the strategies and tools that they need to be able to be successful in jobs like that. One thing that this brings into question to build off what you were just talking about, Mike, is the value of single gender schools and that format for education. Now, within Philadelphia, there's only a handful of single-gender schools. From your reporting and just your dialogue with parents, administrators, teachers over the years, what is the stance these days on single-gender schools and the value, the merits to them, or perhaps some of the drawbacks as well? There's been a debate on the value of single-gender education, whether Public schools should have them. Private schools should have them. Central High School in Philadelphia was all boys, and it, it, it became co-ed. There was debate over that. Of course, at its heart, you know that there are fewer distractions in a single gender school for students who are in their formative years. There is also, at least in the case of this Center City Girls Academy, there is the additional layer of being able to add women's voices to the curriculum uh, in an environment where the school educators feel that they can inspire the uh, the girls in a way that the students can appreciate the the education that they're having in in an environment where it's it's a simply a, a girls environment and again this is it's a private school so this is a choice that they would would, would make get to go to a school with a single gender. So if that's something that appeals to them or, or, or their parents, then then they'll go there. All of these are seemingly factors in putting a school together and building a school from the ground up is pretty ambitious, regardless if it's single gender, public, private, whatever. What timeline is the Center City Girls Academy on in terms of kind of getting things together? And what have they done so far? 
Well, they, they formed a nonprofit. They're fundraising. They have applied to the State uh, Department of Education for uh, a, a license to run a, a private school. The application uh, was sent back and they had to make some modifications and they, they resubmitted the application. That's not necessarily unusual. So the state board will is expected to consider the application at its June meeting. In the meantime, they have hired some teachers, not dozens and dozens, but uh, they've hired some, and they uh, expect to open in the fall with ninth and 10th graders. Now, you might ask, where are they going to open in the fall? They're not publicly saying what their location is yet. They do say that they have had their eye on a uh, center city location that is newly renovated and a space that is formerly used as a, uh, as an educational environment, uh, but they're not publicly saying where it is yet. But all of those ducks have to be lined up. All of those cards have to fall in order to uh, open the school in the fall. There's a lot. You have, to, you have to do hiring and then they have to finish the real estate transaction. But their goal, again, is to open this September. You brought up an earlier point. One of the things that Hallahan ran into is the idea that they would have to raise tuition. What about the tuition at this girls' academy? This is private school, so it is all about the money. How much would it cost for somebody to get in there? Well, it's interesting because the archdiocese said it was closing Hallahan because of declining enrollment, and you would think that the, the tuition would be a major factor. This is about school choice. It is about the opportunity for students, for teachers and parents to have a say in what type of education they want their students to have. And we'll be, we will be working overtime to make sure that we ensure that each student, if they want to attend CCGA, that they have an opportunity to do so regardless of the economical standing. Hallahan was around $8,000 a year. The Center City Girls Academy has set their tuition at $15,000 a year. Now, they say that's more than Hallahan, but it's less than other private schools like Friends Central, where tuition can be as high as $40,000 a year. So they've tried to position their tuition in between the two. Well, Mike, one thing we do know is you're always going to have your finger on the pulse of what's happening in education. The Philadelphia Board of Education, which is, of course, the school board here in the school district of Philadelphia, was in the news last week when one of their members, Maria McColgan, announced that she's going to be stepping down next month. How big of a deal is this and how does the city plan to pretty much find her replacement? Well, it's kind of a big deal. I mean, she headed the school board's policy committee and guided any changes to the uh, to the various policies of the school board over the years. The board has been operating with one vacancy on the nine-member board uh, since last July when Angela McIver resigned. But now with two openings, uh, the mayor's educational nominating panel is collecting names of interested school board volunteers. And we do say they're volunteers because you don't get paid to serve on the school board. That panel will present Mayor Kenny with three names for each opening, and he will select two people to fill those vacancies. And then city council will ultimately have the opportunity to sign off on those nominees to the school board. Uh, remember, Jay, those eight members on the board did hire a superintendent earlier this month, so the work is still getting done. Things are still happening, and KYW's education reporter Mike DiNardo is there to keep an eye on all of it. Mike, thank you so much for coming in and joining us today. It's always fun. Thank you. You can follow Mike at underscore Mike DiNardo on Twitter. That's all for this Tuesday. I'm Jay Scott Smith. I'm Brian Seltzer. I'm Sabrina boyd Circa. And tomorrow is a day some of you might consider a holiday, April 20th, better known as 420. 
Well, in honor of that day, we will be catching up with Mike Doherty about the sale of recreational marijuana in New Jersey, which officially gets underway on Thursday, 421. So join us for that tomorrow. Have a great Tuesday, and we'll be here to help you get over the hump on Wednesday. <laughs>